Killingsworth and Gilbert, two psychologists at Harvard, did a by now very uh, influential clinical trial called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And the uh, reason this trial is so influential is because it was novel and because of the size of it and because of the um, surprising nature of the uh, results. So the novelty of it was they actually had uh, smart app developers develop smartphone applications so that this trial wouldn't have to involve any person-to-person -person interviews. All of the uh, research or data collection was done by somebody, people interacting with their phone on an app. And that's actually very important because so many trials are skewed by people giving answers that they think that the uh, researcher wants them to give, which, uh, rather than honest answers. So uh, the other uh, two were uh, the size and the, the nature of the findings. I'm going to read you a little bit from the actual uh, paper. It's online, and it's actually easy to read. It's only a few pages long. So, Gilbert and Killingsworth created a smartphone app that, in quote, contacts participants through their phones at random moments during walking hours, presents them with questions, and records their answers to a database which contains a quarter of a million samples. They have a quarter of a million responses. They had 5,000 people from 83 different countries ranging in ages from 18 to 88. So, that's a massive study. Um, and a wide uh, array of different people were involved. And here's what they found. One, when they, the basic questions were, what are you doing? Are you paying attention to it or not? And how happy are you? Along with some other questions. And they had sort of, they asked those questions in uh, terms that were specifically put to get a degree of accurate answers so they had things like from 1 to 10, how happy do you say you are now, stuff like that. So um, they found that people were less happy when their minds were wandering than when their minds were not wandering. And this was true of all activities. So no matter what we're doing in life, we're going to be happier if we're focused on it than if we're trying to pull away, resist, distract ourselves. Although people's minds were more likely to wander to pleasant topics, 42% of the time, than unpleasant topics, of course, 25% of the time, people were always still happier when thinking about, um, they were no happier when thinking about pleasant topics than they were thinking about unpleasant activities. So the old human idea that while we're doing something that we don't like, if we sort of think of something pleasant, doesn't work. That's a very surprising finding. We all have a tendency to believe that while we're going through uh, a painful dentist uh, procedure or um, a, something that we find scary or unpleasant, that it's more pleasurable to daydream, think about something we like, go away, dissociate, disconnect. But actually, it turns out that that actually in fact, creates stress. People were considerably unhappier thinking about neutral topics than paying attention to unpleasant 
events in their lives. So if you go to a neutral topic, you're going to be much less happy than if you just simply focus on the unpleasant past that you're doing. So they concluded that what people were thinking, or how people were thinking, was a better predictor of their happiness than what they were actually doing. Let me say that again. How people were thinking is a better predictor of happiness than what they're actually doing. Now, this is, if you're at all following along, it's a very surprising thing. Most of us spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid unpleasant activities and trying to arrange the cards so that we can do pleasant things. And in fact, what this study found is that if you want to be happy, focus less on trying to get to nice, pleasant places, external conditions that are good, and actually spend a lot more time simply learning how to focus on what you're doing, how to pay attention and immerse yourself. You are more likely to be happy if you are doing something neutral like taking a walk on a rainy day in January of Manhattan than being on a beach in Hawaii daydreaming about something else. Why is that? Well, there's a number of studies that came in and showed why not being present, why mind-wandering is so, in fact, stressful. One, Studies showed that when, and this was an fMRI-based study where they did actual clinical uh, findings of brain usage, when your mind is wandering, you're more likely to activate what's known as the default mode operation of the brain. And that's the part of your brain that's associated with the ventromedial access, which is the part that thinks about you and speculates. Speculates like, what's going to happen to me in the future? What do other people think about me? Why aren't I making more money? Why did that person say this to me? Etc. So we're very likely to be magnetically drawn when we're not focusing on the present. We're likely to be magnetically drawn to think speculative thoughts about ourselves. And guess what? It turns out thinking speculative thoughts about ourselves is not very pleasant. It, it might sound fun. Ooh. What would it be like if I got a new job? And that turns into, well, maybe they wouldn't like me there. <laughs> like they didn't seem to like me when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> uh, another reason why not focusing on the present is so stressful, according to recent research, was uh, found by a great psychologist named Dan Wagner of Harvard. Um, who came up with the cognitive overload theory, which is when we are truly present and accepting what's available and what's presenting itself to us, to us it's far less uh, cognitively demanding. When we're trying to resist, distract ourselves, pull ourselves away from what is present, what we're experiencing, it creates more neural firings, more neural pathways are engaged, and that in turn requires the usage of more glutamates, which eventually cause the release of cortisol and stress. So just to, I'll give you an example. When somebody is nervous about speaking in public, if they simply sit up in front of people and say, I'm nervous about speaking in public, there is no cognitive overload. They're expressing what their experience is. 
But if they try to conceal the fact that they're nervous, then they've got the actual experience, nervousness, they've got the emotion that they're trying to present, which is confidence and calmness, and then they've also got to check the people around them to see if other people can see that they're nervous. So they've just added 300% more neural load to their processing. Now obviously, that's not easy to do. So when we disclose our emotions and when we turn towards our experience, it's far more neurally sustainable than if we try to push away our experience. Interestingly enough, some 2,500 years ago, the Buddha gave one of his greatest teachings called the Salaka, the two arrows, and he said, in life, we all get shot by these, what he called these arrows. And he said these arrows are old age, insults, sickness, disappointments, setbacks, they happen to everyone. And he said, everybody's going to get that, and all of those first arrows we could bear. But the thing that makes life unbearable and painful are the second arrows. What are the second arrows, he asked? They're all the ways we try to resist and not acknowledge and distract ourselves and deny and push away and try to turn away and, and flee from the difficult experiences. So the Buddha was saying exactly the same thing, that if we stop resisting experience and turn to whatever it is, pay attention, investigate it, and really begin to learn how to focus uh, attention, in a way that's immersive, then there's a great chance for cultivating peace. Now, around the time of um, Wagner's early work, actually before Wagner, there was a great uh, psychologist named, and you won't be able to remember this, so don't try. It's Hungarian, and it's even more difficult to spell than it is to learn how to pronounce, but I'll do it for you. Mihaly Csikneli Hadi. Chikmeli Hai, Holly. C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T-M-I-H-A-L-Y. Mahi. So, Mahi wrote a book called Love. That's easier to remember. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the most influential positive psychology books uh, since the 1980s. Chikhele um, Mahi, like Seligman and um, uh, Leo Bomorski and Haidt, were, were, he was interested in what creates positive emotional experience, what makes us truly blissful for long periods of time. And so he called these flow states, and he noticed that flow states um, create ease, creativity, enjoyment, and a full immersive involvement in life. And they all have uh, things in common. When we're in a flow state, we're doing an activity that we're engaged in directly. We're not sitting back and consuming. There's some activity we're doing. There's a loss of self-consciousness, i.e. we're not self-obsessed. We're not activating the ventral media. We're not thinking about what do other people think about me, what's going to happen to me, what was I like in the past, what you know, how do I compare with other people? There's no me in it. You're just purely involved with the activity. Feelings of control of the situation, the feedback nature of the activity, 
for instance, uh, one obvious example of flow is sculpting, woodworking, playing an instrument, etc. What you do changes the experience, and it when you do it, it changes the nature, so there's a feeling of control. And guess what? It turns out when there's a feeling of control, the parts of the brain associated with threat vigilance, the part of our brain that's looking around, and all human beings are set with too high a threat vigilance. We're no longer, we're not, our brains are not caught up with, a, uh, how, with how safe we are now as the dominant species. So we're still constantly living as if we're prey, looking around for uh, predators. So when we have feelings of control, when we're engaged in an activity where we're interacting with something, the threat vigilance goes down, as does the self-obsession. And then finally there's a, a change in the way we uh, experience time. We don't experience the same periods of duration trying to get everything done in an hour so that we can get to the next place for the next hour so we can get to the next meeting. When we're in flow, there's no sense of having to get anything done in the time frame. So it turns out, who would have suspected it, that being in an activity that reduces self-obsession and um, self-awareness, that reduces threat, threat vigilance and reduces any sense of hurry, who would have thought that that creates a pleasurable sensation. Surprising, but it turns out that all of the activities you find found had all of those things in common. The feedback, engagement, the lack of self-consciousness, the expanse of time where we're no longer breaking it down into hours, the lack of hurriedness. It creates feelings of ease and reward. So what are some examples of flow states? They're physical activities, anything from yoga to biking to jogging to doing something where there's an activity, playing music, crafts, gardening, hobbies, art, anything that you're engaged with, an activity that's sustainable for periods of time where there's a sense of you change things slightly and you get a difference somewhat of a different feeling, so there's an element of control. Now, what activities do not create any flow state whatsoever? Watching television, consuming media, any kind of social media, eating, shopping online. Consuming activities are not flow states. Why is that? Why is it that there has to be an element of engaged activity that we can't simply be consuming the activity for it to be a flow state that's lasting. In fact, sex is not a flow state, even though <laughs> many of us want to believe it. All non-flow states, one, they have an anticipatory quality. We're aiming towards a payoff, which in sex is somewhat straightforward, but in shopping it is too. Even in watching television, social media where you're posting to see if people will like your post, television, what's going to happen at the end of this. There's an anticipatory quality which means you're not engaged, fully immersed in the present. You're anticipating something that will happen in the future. But even more so than that, 
the fact that it's consuming, not actually engaged, means that the prominent neurotransmitter is dopamine that rewards consuming behaviors. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's associated with bursts of, of pleasure and reward for an activity. Dopamine is notoriously short-lasting. It's the reason why by the time you get the beautiful thing home from the store, it's no longer transfixing and the solution to life's miseries. <laughs> it's the reason why the iPad that looks so alluring in the Apple store window at home suddenly doesn't have the transfixing quality that it had only a half an hour earlier. On the other hand, flow activities, when they finally got the money to do the fMRI studies, they found that it actually engages far more neural regions than just the nucleus accumbens firing off dopamine, and it actually involves more neurotransmitters. It involves, one, norepinephrine, which is a form of adrenaline, which is uh, essentially uh, creates feelings of control. It's activated by the, the, the active part of um, flow states, the fact that you're carving something gardening something, you're doing something that creates a sense of flow. You're engaged. There's a participatory quality. That produces norepinephrine. Um, endorphins are largely released. Now, some activities that are not flow, like sex, endorphins are part of the experience, but endorphins are released in small increments throughout flow, not at the very end like it is in consumable experiences. But even more important, they just recently, in the last 10 years, discovered anandamide, which is a fatty acid associated with states of bliss and ease. And anandamide is a, um, it's a transmitter molecule. It's actually associated, if you want to produce it, so far, the, the, they're actually working on, by the way, antidepressants that will be using um, anandamide. But right now, the most efficient ways to produce it are, one, to eat chocolate, two, to eat cheese, three, to smoke lots of pop. <laughs> I don't do the latter, but... Uh, the latter also has other cannabinoids, I can never pronounce that word, which produce anxiety. So there's more neurotransmitters that are activated by pot. But I, I've heard that in the medical marijuana states, they now have pot. So you can all move to California. I'll probably come here to an empty room next week. <laughs> um, but natural activities that re produce anandamide are flow states. They are engaged, interactive, where there's a sense of creativity, immersion in the present moment, no anticipation, anticipation of the future, a full sense of uh, interest in what one is doing with no desire to get to an end. It's a little bit like when I play the banjo. Yes, I do. Uh, I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, uh, I don't care about reaching the end. It's the activity in itself. Like uh, when people skateboard, it's really not about getting anywhere. It's about the activity in and of itself. 
So why doesn't everybody do flow states? Well, flow states involve, uh, one, a struggle phase. Before you can get any of the flow from an activity, you have to de develop a sense of mastery. It's not easy to simply jump into flow. No matter how much we want to be able to pick up the trumpet and make it enjoyable, we first have to go through the phase called, I suck at this. <laughs> and the I suck at this phase creates feelings of self-consciousness and when can I put this down. So it's the exact opposite of flow. So to, go, to get to a state of flow, you have to work through all those awkward moments when you're first learning how to garden and everything's dying. I suppose you're learning to knit and nothing looks uniform, or why am I using things I have no idea about? <laughs> you're playing the banjo, you can't master the claw hammer rhythm. That's something you all would understand and relate to. So, okay. Um, so, uh, self-consciousness and anticipating the future and hurriedness tend to be uh, enemies of flow. The good news about flow is when you can finally get into it, it has a self-generating loop to it. The more you pay attention to what you're doing, the more relaxed the body tends to be. The more relaxed the body tends to be because you're not thinking stressful thoughts, the easier it is to focus. The easier it is to focus, the more relaxed your body becomes. And it tends to be then a state that's very sustainable over long periods of time. Now, while yogis and the Buddha realized this, they propose that to get to an even finer state of flow, why not remove the, the external activity and focus on an internal activity? And so the yogis of the Vedanta, early Buddhism, early Hinduism, said instead of just doing woodworking and gardening and knitting, why don't we try to use flow internally with the breath? So they did the exact same thing. Immerse yourself aware of how you're breathing. Play around with the breath. Change the duration. See what's really pleasant. That engaged quality will continue to produce the adrenaline to keep you interested along with the endorphins and the uh, anandamide. So they studied this, and it turns out that you can indeed produce the exact same states of flow if you're breathing rather than if you're gardening. The good news about breathing is that you're probably doing it most of the time. It's far more sustainable. Unlike gardening or playing the banjo, I can assure you that eventually over time it becomes painful to hold the arms up for hours on end playing it. Eventually you want to put the damn thing down. With the breath, you can pick it up anywhere unconditionally. There's no stress to the activity, yet there's still the immersion, there's still the creativity, there's still the engagement. So that's why breath meditation is so pleasurable, because it actually is hijacking the human capability, the innate human capability of immersion and flow. We are actually set up with brains that reward us for engaging in tasks. Our threat vigilance goes down, our um, limbic firings in the amygdala go down. Studies by uh, Lazar at Harvard, um, your name is Sarah Lazar, uh, show that gray matter and the attentional structures 
builds, whereas gray matter in the fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain shrinks. So uh, again and again and again, they found that breath meditation is uh, a skillful way of inducing flow. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to conclude so we can go into the meditation that teaches you all this. The Buddha said that there's even states more pleasurable than developing flow in the body. Oh, what is that, Buddha? Well, the Buddha said that he actually spent the last 20 years of his practice engaging in shunyata. Now, shunyata is the Pali term that means emptiness, nothingness. Now, what the Buddha meant is that he found that even paying attention to the breath and playing around with the breath could be made even more pleasant if he dropped the breath and he simply learned how to train his mind to pay attention and focus in different ways on the movements and activities of his own mind. So he learned to have his mind pay attention to his mind. He turned his mind inwards on itself. And he found that playing around with the way you attend or you become aware of consciousness doesn't make you self-conscious. It actually, though, can train the mind to drop into great states of ease associated with the times of the day where we're not thinking, we're not cognizing, we're not adding anything to experience. The basic idea is, the Buddha said, we tend to focus on our thoughts. We tend to gravitate towards our thoughts. And our thoughts, over time, tend to be stressful. But if we instead learn to focus on all those moments in life between thoughts, when we're simply being, when we're simply present, but we're not adding anything to experience, where we're not judging, we're not commenting, we're not criticizing, we're not adding anything, that we can not only find that state very pleasurable, but we could learn how to extend those states and make them the highest peak optimal state of life itself, nirvana. So I fully expect that of all of you. <laughs> I fully expect all of you to be floating out of this room on little, little clouds of, uh, of self-satisfaction. So yeah, find a really comfortable position. And we're going to start this meditation with our eyes open. So you don't have to do anything other than ask yourself what feels like very good balance right now. And uh, a good way to ask yourself that is just tilt without, without looking at your body. Tilt a little bit to the left, to the right, to the front, to the back, and then you swirl around and then just come to stop and see where that natural stop is. And then just try to keep the head from slouching in front of the body. That tends to create a sustainable but don't try to be a meditator. Don't try to get into whatever you think is a meditator pose because chances are, one, it will be a stressful pose. It will not be a natural one. So we're going to start this moment just developing that full immersion associated with flow. And we're going to do this in a kind of roundabout way. 
I'm going to ask you to focus on first the entire bank of windows behind me, the entire visual scene, and just rest your eyes so you're not focusing on anything in particular, and then bring your eyes to focus on one window or one object in the room, not your friendly Buddhist teacher sitting at the front that will make himself conscious, <laughs> but any other object you'd like. And then relax your gaze again and just have your mind open and spacious, taking in the entire visual field. And then focus again on the single object and make it as detailed as you can. And then release the focus. You're actually, when you do that, you're moving from left to right hemispheres. They both have different uh, control over the focused and unfocused attention. You'll find that when you focus in on a specific object, that it requires slightly more energy than when you relax the gaze and open up awareness to simply receive the entire visual field. And in so doing, as we move, you can even choose another object. You can try to see how much of the visual field you could take in, as well as does it make you feel more immersed in the present moment by feeling the clothes in your body, the breath you're taking at this moment, the sounds drifting from the street below, and my voice. So you're engaging in the present moment and see if you can find the most relaxed way to simply sit and be present. Where, what kind of focus, what kind of seat, what kind of awareness. Do you want your mind to be aware of everything or do you want your mind to principally be aware of sight or sound or body sensations? So play around with this kind of awareness and see yourself what produces the greatest state of ease. Don't try to get anywhere, just experiment. Okay, if I'm aware of sight and sound, how relaxed is that? Now, if I'm more relaxed should I stay there or should I try being aware of sight and body sensations or sight and breath or defocus sight and focus on the breath primarily?
See if you can relax your body, softening the belly, relaxing the shoulders so they fall heavily from the neck muscles, relaxing any clenching in the jaw, How does relaxing the body affect your immersion in the presence? And when any thought that is not about this actual experience, any thought that wants to add or pull you away or comment or judge or criticize anything that you're doing, just say hello to it, greet it, and tell it you'll connect with it in about 25 minutes. So at this point, closing the eyes and simply notice what is the effect of removing sight. I generally find that when I remove sight, one, internal physical sensations become far more clear, crisp, discernible, and that two, there's an element of ease because the mind no longer scans the environment trying to find something to think about knowing that we're perfectly safe here with so many friends. We can close our eyes without any feeling of concern. And without the visual detail of the world around us, there's nothing but the soothing darkness behind the eyes. You might also see some closed eye visuals associated with neural firings sporadic proto-images, but the soothing darkness, a lack of visual detail, can add a slightly more relaxed state. Now, if the body sensations feel overwhelming, bring in awareness of either one contact sensations with the ground, your clothes, and also the sounds drifting in. The more you listen to sound, the more expansive the mind will feel. And that often is a wonderful way to be with sensations that are a little bit strong at first. But if the body feels relaxed, then just ask, allow awareness to drift down into the body.
While you're aware of the internal experience, you can bring to mind the breath, breathing body, breathing in and out. Or just the ambient sensations of the body, the field of tingling and feelings of heaviness, liquid, lightness. If you want to instill greater ease, try to make the out-breath twice as long as the in-breath. A good practice is to count to three in the in-breath, or four. Make the in-breath as full as you can. Make the out-breath smooth and long, and count to twice as long. So if you count to four in the in-breath, count to eight in the out. So at this point we're going to move to an even more refined stage of the meditation. If you're comfortable where you are right now, by all means feel invited to just use this stage 
the succeeding stages are somewhat abstract, and so if you'd like to try them, just see whatever they suggest. Don't try to do it right or worry about if you're doing it right. Just open to whatever the words suggest. So letting go of the focus on the breath and body sensations, and instead see if you can bring awareness to those moments of quietness in the mind, the time between thoughts, or areas of the body where there are no sensations, or times when the outside world grows quiet. Most of the time awareness focuses on objects, things, ideas, words, concepts, things we add on to experience, or physical sensations. In this practice, Buddha was suggesting learn how to become aware of the times where there is no contact. <coughs> so can you become aware of your mind when it's quiet?
And now we're going to move into the final stage. Instead of focusing awareness on silence, the lack of thought or sensations, bring your attention to your mind's workings in and of themselves. Don't focus on anything, just notice when the mind is fully present and when it's pulled away, when it feels bright and expansive and when the mind feels very small and contracted. Untethered to anything you have to focus on, just notice how your mind in and of itself works on its own. Additionally, in this process, it's a customary for very advanced practitioners to try to let go of dualistic thinking, which means this is mine, or this is happening inside of me. Those sensations are happening outside of me. So we hear sirens right now. We tend to label them as happening outside in the world. We feel a sensation in the stomach and we think that's mine. Nobody else knows that it's there but me. So we're always breaking down experience into this is mine. This is not mine. This is myself. This is not myself. So see if you can experience instead everything you're aware of is happening in your mind. Every body sensation, every sound, every contact, any thought that drifts by. No longer having any sense of inside or outside, letting go of the sense of your body being separate from anything else. It's just a part of the field of experience of this moment in time. releasing into the vast sense of space surrounding us on all sides. Noticing the blurred sensations between the body and the ground that supports us. Letting go of this is mine, this is not mine. Just being completely aware of this moment. Noticing how the mind works without adding anything to the
So we're about to start the transition from the meditation at this point. Bring awareness back to the body. <coughs> the breath, the feelings of contact, and especially the outline of the body if you were practicing transcending dualistic thought. Just feel yourself back in your own skin. And when it's time to open our eyes, which we'll do in a moment, first look at the ground in front of you and try to just first look at the color and the lightness and integrate that awareness into the embodied awareness of the breath, sensations, feelings. If you simply open your eyes and look around, you'll disconnect with all the internal experience. And we'll wind up in a very tight awareness once again. So when you're ready, open your eyes.